You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I'm joined today with my uh, good friend, Carmi Levy. And uh, we're talking about some interesting tech stories. We are Canada's number one tech radio program. Netflix, one of the biggest streamers out there. I don't know if you knew this. They're still mailing out DVDs. They had a mail order DVD service. That's how they started. And it's still been going. But it looks like that's coming to an end. We'll get to the bottom of that. We'll also be talking about metaverse security. We're going to be getting more and more into the metaverse with virtual reality, augmented reality. But how are we looking after security when it comes to payments and just our private information and our private avatars? We'll be chatting with MasterCard all about that. And uh, the new BlackBerry movie is coming. Remember BlackBerry? Well, we'll... Uh, Give you some details on that uh, as well. Uh, but Carmi, let's get in some of the tech news here. This was uh, fascinating and kind of scares me at the same time. Uh, there's a, a smart gun that operates on facial recognition and it's gone on sale in the U.S. How does this thing work? So it comes from a company uh, based in Colorado called BioFire Tech. And basically what it is, is it has to authenticate you first before it will allow you to shoot the gun. And so it uses facial recognition. Um, and uh, and it's like signing in using a password, except in this case, the password is your face. And the demo, the demo is interesting. You know, the the it 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 worked once, and then it didn't work again, and it 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 failed to <laughs> unlock itself, and the individual was not able to fire the gun. Okay. Um, which you know is is kind of indicative of this technology. It's not quite ready for prime time. Facial recognition, as we know, uh, often doesn't work. In some cases, it works too well, and uh, it, it has a very high false positive rate, especially if you are from the BIPOC community. If you are darker skinned, uh, it is these technologies have largely been trained on lighter skinned populations, and they don't tend to do well uh, with individuals who do not have light complexions. Um, and so all of this is now being built into arguably the most uh, dangerous consumer product available, a gun, and they're expecting this to work. And even the, the very carefully controlled demo illustrates that that is not exactly the case. They're not the only company. There are a couple of other companies that are working on uh, biometric-based guns. The promise is certainly there. Uh, you know, if a child, for example, gets a hold of a gun, they, in theory, won't be able to authenticate. Uh, you know, these are very important safety concerns, and this technology can certainly help. But to assume that it'll work as advertised every single time uh, is is a, a bit of a false uh, statement. And uh, I think we're seeing now here that it isn't quite ready for prime time as much as we wish it could be. Does this thing have a screen on it? No, apparently it's like a light on it that sort yep. of shows that you hold it up to your face and it shows that... Uh, that you know when it scans you uh and and allows you to authenticate and then you can shoot it uh it can you know in addition to reducing uh you know accidental firings by children uh can certainly help in in uh you know me mental health cases suicide um protect police as well so, so no one can just grab their gun uh if the gun is stolen uh they'll need to authenticate onto it uh very difficult to bypass at least according to the the manufacturer so Certainly lots of promise, but again, it's that uh, sort of everyday gun uh, owners are complaining about it because they say, well, what if I'm in an emergency and I need to use the gun now and I can't sign in? It's like not being able to unlock my phone. Um, you know, those, those precious seconds could be the difference between life and death. So uh, there are people on both sides of the gun control issue who are not very happy about this technology. 
but you know whether we like it or not, it's coming to market, uh, and you will be able to buy a gun like this later this year. I I see the promise of this, Carmi, but to your point, the people that really love their guns, they don't like it because they feel like you were saying that it could uh, stop them from shooting it if it's not recognizing it in time. Exactly. And that, of course, you know, anyone who's followed the gun control debate in the U.S. knows full well that that is a huge talking point for the gun owning community. Um, you know, and I'm certainly not, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't identify myself as an NRA member ever, um, but I can certainly understand that if you buy a gun for personal protection and then you worry that the, the technology will get in the way at a moment when you need it most, that could be another reason why. Uh, you know, you, you would want the tech to be a little bit more fully baked before it becomes available. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. We want technology to allow us to have our cake and eat it, too. We want it to make guns safer, you know, so that, you know, the good guy with the gun, um, you know, that that it, it limits its use to those scenarios and not all the other ones that that tend to generate the headlines. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is biometrics is not 100 percent, not even close. Um, so it'll fail in all sorts of different ways that we can and cannot foresee. Uh, and unfortunately, it's almost like trying to put lipstick on a pig. Um, you know, really what we should be doing is trying to get rid of the guns in the first place or have fewer of them out there. And then maybe fewer people would feel compelled to use technology as a way of staying safe. We're going to have to take a break here. We still have a lot to cover on today's Get Connected. Uh, we will be chatting about uh, the new BlackBerry movie uh, coming out. It looks very entertaining. Uh, maybe reminisce a little bit about uh, the good old BlackBerry days. And uh, also Netflix. I didn't know they still mail DVDs. Apparently they do. Well, that's changing, and we'll give you the details on that uh, as well. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Carmi Levy. We're going to talk about Netflix, uh, one of the biggest streaming giants out there. A lot of us use it to watch our favorite shows and television series. They started out back in the day as a, a DVD rental service. They would actually mail you DVDs movies that you selected Uh, and then uh, they were one of the smart ones that actually uh, evolved over time to get into the the streaming uh, uh, arena well Carmi this is fascinating it comes out that uh, Netflix is going to stop mailing out DVDs so number one I didn't even know they still did that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I tried I tried to explain this to my kids that, you know, once upon a time, the Netflix that you know as the streaming service wasn't a streaming service at all. It sent you DVDs in a, in a red envelope uh, and and you could send them back anytime you wanted. And they looked at me with this blank look on their face like, no way, dad, you're, you're kidding me. Um, but yeah, that was the original incarnation of Netflix uh, when it originally launched in 1998. And that was the era of Blockbuster. That was the era of the you know, local video store. Uh, and this offered an alternative because it had a much bigger catalog. You could find movies that you couldn't find in your corner store, uh, your corner video store. And, uh, you know, it really sparked you know, the cinephile involvement in the movie rental business. And and it was uh, it was a revelation for the longest time. It was the standard. A bunch of others of, of other companies launched copycat services, but none of them ever took root. Um, and then, of course, you know, less than a decade later, uh, broadband became a thing and Netflix launched its streaming service and the rest is history. But they've been maintaining the the, the DVD by mail service. You could find it at DVD.com. Uh, 
uh, in parallel with the streaming service, as the streaming service grew, the mail-based service continues to kind of fade into history uh, to the point that uh, of all of its revenue, it's I think it accounts for less than 1%, about 0.6% of Netflix's revenue. And the company finally decided, you know what, it's just not who we are anymore. It's not worth it. They announced that they're shutting it down as of September uh, and they're not uh, letting us know if they're going to be selling off all those cool DVDs that they have. So uh, <laughs> kind of the end of an era. And I'm a little verklempt about it because I I remember when the service launched. I remember how you know unique and different it was. And it really was a different era. And yes, technology moves on. Uh, but sometimes it's a little bit sad when we lose icons like this one. It's, uh, it is definitely going to be missed. And it doesn't leave without some kind of impact on how we watch movies even today. You say end of an era. I didn't even know that era was still here. Like, I am just blown away when I heard this story, uh, you know, this week, that it was still going. Like, that just blows my mind. Netflix has had such an interesting history, though, hasn't it, Carmi? You know, it started off uh, doing this, you know, uh, DVD rental by by mail. At, at one point, Blockbuster, remember them? They actually had an opportunity to buy Netflix. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and uh, if you listen to the the founders of Netflix, they talk about uh, the I think it was Reed Hastings talks about the meeting when they went to Blockbuster headquarters. And of course, at the time, Blockbuster was was literally a blockbuster. Thousands of stores across the land, the dominant player in the movie rental business. Um, and I think the the offer on the table was about fifty million dollars. So I mean, chump change compared to today's mega deals, but at the time certainly would have been a pretty big payout. Uh, and they said that they were laughed out of the room. That Blockbuster looked at Netflix and essentially said, "Ah, ha, ha, like they didn't take them seriously. They thought they were just some dumb kids." Uh, and uh, and the rest, of course, is history. Netflix grew and grew and essentially ate block Blockbuster's lunch. And now I think there's one Blockbuster store left in the world. So, I mean, it really does show how critical it is for companies to not just, you know, buy their own PR. They have to recognize that just because you dominate one market today doesn't mean that's going to be the case tomorrow. And you have to be willing to pivot it. And maybe Blockbuster saying no to them uh, kind of opened their eyes and showed them that, you know, may, yeah, may, you may, might be dominating the 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 DVD by mail service today, but you're going to have to pivot as technology changes. And I think Netflix, the culture there was smart enough to recognize that the world was changing and they had to change as well. So pretty bad day getting laughed out of Blockbuster headquarters, but clearly they had the last laugh. But can you imagine, Carmi, if if that deal had gone through, like, I don't think that there would be a Netflix. Do you know what I mean? They would have been absorbed by a giant. And we've seen it so many times. Remember MySpace? How yeah, big that yeah. was back in the day. It got bought by Rupert Murdoch back back in 2010. I can't even remember. Somewhere in there. And they killed it. Like they just it yeah. withered on the vine. The tech industry is filled with examples of companies that were once dominant but ended up being relics simply because they they failed to see that the, the world was evolving and they were so insular. They were focused on their own success. Look at BlackBerry. BlackBerry laughed at Apple when they introduced the iPhone. Nobody's going to want a touchscreen phone. Everybody's going to want a, a device with physical keyboards on it. They completely missed the switch to, to an app-based economy. Absolutely misunderstood that it, you weren't just selling um, status devices to business people and corporate icons, but you were selling devices to everybody. Everybody, your mom and dad and the kids. 
Uh, and so companies that fail to roll with the punches become has-beens, become, you know, relegated to the dustbin of tech history. Uh, and, and you know, the entire tech industry is filled with examples of that. And Netflix, I think, to its credit, recognized that uh, they were, you know, they were not going to be part of that. If they had stuck with DVD by mail exclusively, they would be, uh, you know, the next blockbuster. But I think those ex early experiences really convinced them we've got to be agile, we've got to be able to pivot, and we have to never believe our own PR, never sort of look at our success to date and go, that's enough, we we've won there, no one's ever going to outflank us. Uh, in the world of tech, everyone can always outflank you, and you've got to be ready to change uh, literally at a moment's notice and reinvent the company as, as you go along. They're almost at a crossroads again right now when you think about it, you know, them getting out of the, the mail order DVD <laughs> service this week just kind of makes me think, what what is next for Netflix? There is so much competition now. Uh, Disney is like, you know, hot on their heels. Uh, there's uh, Paramount uh, Plus, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Peacock, uh, everyone is trying to make a stake in the, the streaming game. And it comes down to money. Like these companies are spending billions of dollars in creating content and they're losing money hand over fist. Like Disney, they're laying off thousands of people again because mm -hmm. they are losing money on creating all that, that content. So where does Netflix go from here now? Like what is that uh, next evolution? They find themselves between a rock and a hard place. It was a lot of fun for Netflix when they were the only streaming game in town. And, and you know, Netflix was a verb. Netflix was the only option that you had. Uh, and now, of course, all these giant companies, established companies are rushing into the space and uh, spending more and more. Netflix went from spending a couple of billion dollars a year on content to a couple of years ago, it was up to $11 billion. And then last year, it was $17 billion US. I'm not sure what this year's number is, but it'll be even bigger. And that's the crazy thing is that on the one hand, it, intensifying competition means it has to spend more to get our attention because that's how we, that's how we, that's why we subscribe to get those titles that everyone's talking about. But at the same time, as competition grows, their, their growth rate has flattened out. They're no longer growing. Their subscriber base is no longer as large as is. That's why they're cutting down on password sharing. That's why prices have been going up. Um, that's why they've been cutting their catalogs. They're trying to cut their costs so they can survive. They, so rock me hard place. Where do they go next? Uh, they move beyond basic streaming. They reinvent themselves again. They've bought into things like gaming, online services, um, they have to figure out what they're going to be when the world no longer is interested in streaming, when the streaming market is mature and no longer the thing that everybody talks about. And it's coming. And unfortunately for Netflix, it's coming faster than uh, the company would have wished. Uh, but the good news is, again, is it, they've already pivoted once. And so, uh, it would, you know, and they've had a couple of pretty rocky years, but their last couple of quarters have been pretty positive. And I think they're starting to, to wreck, you know, to sort of, change that direction successfully um, and reestablishing their footing as they try to build new businesses that replace their existing one. I got to be honest, if I'm looking five, 10 years out, I think uh, they are in a, uh, they're going to be in a decline. I just don't see anything innovative that they are doing now or could possibly do uh, to compete against mm -hmm. some of these giants. Like look at Amazon. They're competing against oh, yeah. Amazon, right? Amazon has Amazon Prime Video, which is doing pretty good. But Amazon has like, got such a diverse business as well. They're into e-commerce. They've got their Amazon Web Services. Mm -hmm. uh, they're up against Disney. <laughs> like, What kind of innovation could possibly come out now that would kind of propel them forward? Because they're just kind of in the content game now. 
Yeah, and I think that's the risk. And certainly, you know, Disney you know, content is just one business for Disney. Amazon's same deal. So they can afford to lose money on the streaming service as they establish it because their other businesses will continue to fund it. Netflix doesn't have that luxury. Uh, and so either Netflix figures out a way to get itself out of the crosshairs of Disney and Amazon uh, by by moving into a completely separate business um, or it watches its existing streaming business continue to basically flatline. But certainly the days of double digit growth uh, are over. The days of limitless profitability and margin are also over. Um, and we're no longer to be talking about Netflix sort of as the only streaming option in town. Um, I think that, you know, and, and and at the end of the day, does Netflix get bought out? I think that's I th probably I the most likely option. I think option so. At some Apple? Point. I think you someone's going to write it. Um, I think so. so and, and, you know, Apple's certainly one of the possibilities because wouldn't and Apple is sitting on what something like a quarter of a trillion dollars in cash alone. So, can, certainly has the ability to make mega deals like this to take out a competitor um, and also gain access to the kinds of properties that it currently does not have. In many cases, licensing them on your own is more expensive than simply buying the company that you're competing against. So I think at some point, I think Apple's and, and Amazon and Disney are all potential buyers of Netflix. Uh, and I think what they'll do is they'll bide their time, recognizing that Netflix is the odd, the odd player out at this point and is the one that's most vulnerable. They'll just wait for its decline to con to continue. They'll wait for its value to stagnate. Uh, and then at some point, the, the number that they have to write on an offer uh, gets mm. small enough that it's worth it for them. And then there will be a bidding war and that'll be the end of that. Uh, they will be the next Palm Pilot uh, of their market. And that's just the way it goes. Every innovator in technology, if you sort of strike out on your own to beat the competition in that way, eventually you get caught. And I think that's where Netflix is inevitably headed. We're going to have to take a break here and get connected. Uh, when we come back, we've got uh, a lot more tech to talk. Uh, we'll be talking with the folks over at MasterCard and the metaverse. And what can we do about the security? Like, how do we secure our payments and just our identities as the metaverse takes hold in our world? You listen, get connected here on the Course Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with the program, Mike Agarbo here in studio. We've uh, talked a lot about the metaverse uh, over the past uh, year. Lots of changes uh, happening there, and it's continuing uh, to grow. Uh, but uh, we've got an interesting guest now. Uh, she is with uh, MasterCard. Her name is Aviva Klein. She's been on the program before. She's the VP of Digital Payments and Cyber Intelligence. Uh, so I uh, I brought her on because I, I want to get her thoughts on how you know the metaverse is uh, evolving and uh, you know what we need to look for as far as payments and uh, making sure that uh, we're protected when we're out in our virtual worlds. Thanks for joining us, Aviva. Thank you so much for having me back on the show, Mike. So the uh, the metaverse it's uh, it's kind of a it's a big big word, isn't it? Really, it kind of encompasses a lot of different uh, components you know i think some people think about the metaverse you know they put on virtual reality headsets but it, it's it's many different parts isn't it uh, it certainly is i mean it it really is sort of built on the foundation of blockchain technology um and you know blockchain obviously drives cryptocurrency drives uh nfts uh which is a lot of the sort of underpinning of the of the metaverse, this virtual world where, you know, we can socialize, work and play uh, similar to how we do in the real world. You know, you've been obviously diving into this, um, you know, as MasterCard. What are some of the concerns do you think consumers have about the metaverse? I think that 
you know, it ultimately comes down to privacy and security concerns, uh, both the privacy and security of your personal PII information, um, as well as the financial information that is tied to that personal information. And I think that that concern is felt equally by consumers as well as business leaders. Uh, we know that consumers are still more comfortable using traditional payments like credit cards and debit cards uh, when they're, you know, in the metaverse, in these virtual realities. Uh, we know that there are some metaverses who have their own currencies, uh, like in-game tokens and credits and things of that nature. Um, there are less, consumers are less uh, comfortable using those types of technologies and even less comfortable, um, you know, using cryptocurrencies, which are specifically built for uh, virtual use. And I think that, you know, business leaders, you know, they they believe that they also have a role to play and that in particular financial institutions have a role to play in providing, um, you know, extending the trust that we have with our banks in the in the physical world into the into the virtual realities that we are going to be probably spending a lot more time in in the very near future it's funny you know because the the metaverse has really been bubbling up and like you said it is tied to the blockchain and nfts and cryptocurrency and uh, you know for a few years here people are like been saying oh crypto is the future you know things like bitcoin the old banking method is dead. Everything's going to be decentralized. But I think there's something to be said for having kind of a structure <laughs> that that actually has worked for, for, for many years. Because, you know, we saw with the whole crypto crash last year, a lot of people lost a lot of uh, money. And how do you know which coins and things are, are secure? So what is MasterCard doing to, to support people? So I just say that, you know, not all cryptocurrencies are the same. Um, there are cryptocurrencies that are tied back to fiat. And then there are cryptocurrencies that have their own valuation and fluctuate with the demand um, for that currency. So there are different cryptocurrencies out there. Um, it's a very generic term. Um, what are we doing in terms of supporting consumers in the metaverse? We're, we're doing a lot of experimentation, that's for sure. Uh, we're building new partnerships. Um, we are doing a ton of experimentation around cryptocurrency, um, looking at you know how financial institutions can um, easily you know provide buy sell hold capabilities to their customers that's not something that we currently have today but obviously something that we're thinking about um as you know demand for crypto will undoubtedly return um as we see you know more activity in these virtual areas it's just inevitable that you're going to have uh more need for some sort of a digital cryptocurrency um and it's you know really kind of early days uh, are you know we've, we've seen very recently a number of the large digital players have started to actually pull back a little bit from the metaverse focusing more on 
hotter topics, shinier pennies, like, you know, AI, chat GPT, those types of things. Uh, we're, we're actually going to double down um, on the metaverse. We actually just launched a uh, new M NFT uh, where we're partnering with uh, musicians uh, to uh, showcase their music in the digital form. Um, so that's something you can certainly check out online. Um, in Pride, uh, last year we partnered with Decentraland um, to create a digital space for the global LGBT community. Um, we certainly have our own blockchain and are doing all sorts of really interesting things around um, uh, smart contracts, uh, which isn't necessarily metaverse related, but again, does leverage it, it, that. It, it underlying, can tie into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that underlying technology that drives the metaverse. So uh, we, we believe that, you know, a lot of retail and e-commerce is going to come out of the metaverse. Um, and, you know, we're very excited by it, by it and we're continuing to invest in the space. It's interesting. I think when a lot of people think MasterCard, uh, you know, they just think credit card. But you guys have your hands in so much different fintech and, and, and things like uh, metaverse technology uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the large credit card networks really do drive um, and support the retail economy. Um, and, you know, we need to make sure that as retailing changes, that people and businesses can exchange goods for value. Um, so we're very, you know, in tune with where shopping habits are going, where people are spending their time, how they consume services, entertainment, things of that nature. And we, we want to make sure that, you know, we're there and that people can use their MasterCard, whether they're, you know, face to face in front of a merchant, sitting on their couch, on a phone or, you know, wearing an Oculus hide, you know, eye set. Um, we want to make sure that our cardholders can pay for things in a enjoyable and secure way. Okay, Aviva, you've got a crystal ball. Where do you see us in five years with the metaverse? Are we going to be shopping, uh, you know, in, in virtual Staples stores, um, waving our hand that's got a MasterCard built into it to, <laughs> to pay? Like, what, what are you seeing? That's a really good question. Um, I think we see that already with younger kids. Um, they are like in the, you know, the Roblox generation, um, you know, we see that a lot. Um, I think it's really going to depend on age probably. I think, you know, uh, some of the, some of the older generation may not be so into it. Um, I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I, 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 I think, I think you might have stumped me a little bit. I think um... <laughs> I, I can't. Well, I, I I ask all the guests that come on because it's just so nebulous to me right now. Like I just I'm I'm into it in a big way, just like trying out all these different worlds and pieces. And I just it, it's hard to really see what the next five years uh, or ten years uh, you know will bring. You know, I, I know some people are thinking we're all going to be wearing virtual reality glasses and stuff, but I think we're still. Uh, a ways uh, away from that. And uh, it's coming down just to having the right infrastructure and uh, I, I guess in place, you know, these, there are so many virtual worlds like Facebook has got their own world. Well, that's just, there's it. like hundreds, if not thousands of different worlds that are connected, but they're not. Do you know what I mean? 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think some of the potential challenges that we're going to see with the metaverse is this notion of interoperability um, and the idea that I, I don't want to have to prove my identity every time I go from one universe to another. And I want to make sure that my experience is the same, that my guarantees around safety and security are the same, um, that I can pay for things and, you know, that that there's that there's really interoperability. Um, and a lot of those, that framework, you know, the standards committees, they, they're just not there yet. So I really do believe to kind of go back to the crystal ball question that we're not going to see mass adoption until we figure out how to merge these different metaverses together um, and allow people to travel from one place to another carrying around you know their identity their history their payment methods etc and my virtual clothes hopefully they're branded well they are i mean all the big guys nike and everyone they're 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 making millions on that aviva i want to thank you for joining us Uh, again always insightful talking with you Thank you so much. Have a nice day. That was Aviva Klein. She uh, is the VP of Digital Payments and Cyber Intelligence over at MasterCard. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected, Mike and Carmi here. We are going to talk about BlackBerry now. Uh, BlackBerry was a Canadian success story. They created uh, arguably the most... Uh, popular smartphone back in the day you could uh, send and receive email uh, from it but when apple came along and technology marched forward with touchscreen phones they uh, fell behind and eventually got uh, annihilated they still are around Uh, they're more into uh, i guess car operating systems uh, bank operating systems for like atms and also high-end server security software but uh, a new BlackBerry movie is uh, coming out, uh, kind of chronicling uh, the uh, the rise of uh, that particular company. Are you excited to see this, uh, Carmi? I really am, and, and you know, because I mean, you and I have been talking about this company for years. You know, my first major experience as a tech analyst covering the technology space was BlackBerry, um, and arguably that's how I grew my brand. Was that I you know, I lived not that far from. Uh, Waterloo, where the company was headquartered. It was a huge local story for me as the company grew into a global powerhouse. Um, And then, of course, as it started to retrench, as uh, it ran into trouble when Apple introduced the iPhone um, and they failed to to pivot, that story became just all-encompassing. It consumed all of the tech oxygen in the room. It was the only tech story that people wanted to talk about day after day, week after week, month after month. It was astounding. And so it defined a a good chunk of my career. And so to have a movie like this, and they're calling it a biopic. It's it's based on a, on a book that was released a few years back by a couple of Globe and Mail journalists. It was called Losing the Signal. Um, and they take, you know, admittedly, they take liberties with the story. So it's, it's, it's based on the actual story. But a lot of the characterizations are, they're kind of Hollywood. They're kind of over the top. But it was an over the top story with bigger than life characters and people I knew who worked uh, for first research in motion and then after they rebranded as BlackBerry, my direct exposure to the company, working with them as well, uh, trying to cover them, they were bigger than life and it was a bigger than life story. And it, it certainly was one of those one of those companies that put Canada on the global technology map. And so I think we need a, a movie that kind of blows it up a little bit and, uh, and it mixes in a little bit of Hollywood fun in the process. And 
everything that I'm seeing from the from the trailers as well as from people who've seen the early screenings. It was screening in Toronto uh, last week. Uh, they're saying it's it's awesome. If you if you had any kind of uh, sort of passing connection to BlackBerry, even if you just owned one of those devices and wondered what happened to them, this is a must see movie uh, for pretty much every Canadian. And I'm counting down the days till May 12th when it hits theaters because I will probably be in line to see the you know the first showing of it. Um, and I'll bring some of my old Blackberries. I'll carry them with me, and there'll probably be some Instagram <laughs> moments too. So cool you were Canadian you were a Blackberry stuff. guy. I was, and and you know, and I, I remember full well that first Blackberry experience. I remember standing in it was late 1999, frozen parking lot in Winnipeg. Uh, the building that I'd been in, we were, I was there to work with my, my project team and it was evacuated because of, of a fire alarm and it was ultimately a false alarm. But here we are, we had been on a conference call in a 17th floor uh, conference room and uh, all of a sudden we were all standing, freezing our tails off in the middle of a parking lot. And one of our, uh, one of the attendees pulled out an early BlackBerry. And this, it wasn't even a BlackBerry phone. It was just BlackBerry with a screen. And she was able to send and receive email and, and text messages. And she pulls it out and a crowd kind of gathered around her. And and she's like, she goes, don't worry. You know, I'll just let everyone know by email that, you know, we're here and, and you know, we'll, we'll continue the meeting when we get back upstairs. And it was, you, it, as, and everyone was watching her do her thing send the email and then she of course she answered questions and 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 we all kind of knew something had changed at that moment um and and so i became a fan literally from that moment i said okay i've got to get one and i've got to make the business case at work to get one because it was still a very businessy kind of machine uh, and ultimately we did and and uh and from that moment forward i realized this is a game-changing technology it takes email out from the office it's sort of you know where it's been tethered and stuck uh and it allows you to get work done wherever you want and it, it keeps work flowing even if you're outside of the office and it was a, a remarkable change in culture and the fact that it was a canadian company that made it happen and that it was so easy to use and it was so robust. I mean, these things were built like tanks and it didn't matter what you did to them. They wouldn't crash. They would work regardless. Batteries lasted forever. It was world leading Canadian technology. And the fact that it came from just up the road was was just a really neat story. And so I was I was a fan before I was an analyst. Uh, and then as I covered the company, I realized there's a lot, you know, there's a reason this technology occurred. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. Uh, and it was really driven by some some pretty cool characters uh, you know, from opposite ends of the of the personality spectrum. And as Canadians, we kind of owe it to ourselves to figure that out and learn the lessons of, A, why they succeeded in the first place and why they ultimately imploded, because those are lessons that Canadian businesses, both tech and non-tech, uh, can follow today. And in fact, uh, that you do yourself a disservice if you don't. It's so funny. I, I, I was never a BlackBerry guy. I was really into tech, but I just, I don't know, it just, I never liked it. Uh, you know, I, I yeah. got into like the Windows Mobile, you know, with a Motorola Q and, uh, you know, it was the, the, the Trio and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time, uh, you know, they, they sent me a BlackBerry, the first touchscreen BlackBerry. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, the BlackBerry Storm. Yeah. It was weird. It was a full touchscreen, but it also, yeah. you could click the whole screen in. To, yeah, to, to it make... was it was really strange. It was almost like they rushed it to market because they knew that other companies and Apple certainly were moving to market fairly quickly, and uh, it wasn't fully baked. And it was it was it was buggy. It crashed a lot. Um, didn't have any. You know, it wasn't. It was before apps were a thing. But even the the apps that it came with didn't work very well. It was harder to use. And I think you you've touched on a really good point. Is that 
BlackBerry was always a business device. It was targeted at people who would pull it out of their suit jackets. It, it was built for the conference room. It wasn't built for everyone. It wasn't built for my mom. It wasn't built for me and my wife and my kids. Um, and, it, and, and when they tried to make it, you know, sell it as a, as a consumer product, you know, first the Pearl and then the Storm and then the Torch and you know, all these sort of consumer focused devices, it was almost like they were trying to sort of squeeze it into the consumer space and consumers frankly didn't it wasn't easy to use at that point it it was it was trying to be something that it was not and you know next to an apple iphone it was almost embarrassing um if you use the two of them side by side uh, and ultimately the fact that they dismissed the iphone they laughed at it oh whoever wants a device without a keyboard you know they thought it was a toy um, I think is is uh, you know sort of you know it's kind of like the ultimate uh, arrogance, and I think it, it it illustrates why you should never be arrogant when you leave when you lead a market because it it doesn't take much for a competitor to come along and leapfrog you, uh, and uh, you you would do well to keep your eyes open and be a little bit more humble in the process. You talk about that arrogance, and I, I I think you're so right because you know when they were sending me these these new touchscreen models here, there there was an arrogance like you know this. You know, we're, we're coming out with a touchscreen. We still believe the keyboard is the way to go, but our touchscreen is just like far superior to the, you know, the iPhone uh, that's in the market now. And I'm like, you know, I'm a tech, I was a tech guy, a tech journalist. I'm like, yeah, I mean, cool, but have you seen an Apple iPhone? Have you guys <laughs> actually got your hands on one and used it and and just looked at the simplicity of it? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I guess that arrogance maybe came from the top. I think it did. Um, I think the arrogance was focused on it was focused on their hardware. They they sold the most popular smartphone at the time, but they didn't realize that the rest of the world wasn't in on it. It was only to business customers, and so they weren't listening to consumers. They weren't putting it in the hands of their moms and and asking them to use it and walking them through it. And they weren't doing side by side comparisons with new emerging technologies like the iPhone. And I think if they did. Um, and if they were a little more willing to recognize the limitations of their own technology, they might have been more, more willing to pivot. But truth of the matter is, is their culture killed them. It wasn't a failure of technology. It was a failure of culture. Um, and I think any company to this day looks at that and uh, they're going to be teaching this in business schools for years um, because that arrogance ultimately killed uh, this company. It'll kill any other company that follows that lead. That's all the time we have left for the program. I want to thank Carmi Levy for joining us again today. Don't forget to uh, listen to our sister show. It's uh, called The App Show. It's on every Sunday here on the Course Radio Network on tomorrow's App Show. We'll be covering some interesting stuff. Uh, Google Chromebooks, are they made to last? Well, we'll get to the bottom of that. And AI written spam email It's going to be flooding your inbox very soon. This is Mike Agarbo and Carmi Levy signing off. We'll see you again next time.